Maybe you, like me, really enjoyed drinking from those sweet wells in our previous passage of God's love and His assurance and His promises. And last week, we heard God make wonderful, sweet promises to His people. He promised them, even as they were fearing that they would go into exile, that He would definitely bring them back. He'd bring them back from Babylon. He would humble that great nation that had defeated them. God comforted his people that he would lead them through every trial and every danger. Those were sweet, hopeful promises. But even as God's people would have enjoyed those assurances that they heard through Isaiah, God then turns and gives them a warning. Let's turn to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, and we're going to start at verse 22. Isaiah 43, verse 22 to 28. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me, bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities." I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance, let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first fathers sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. This is the word of the Lord. So even though God has promised to deliver his people from exile, he gives them this very stern warning as to why they have gone into exile in the first place. And his accusations first and foremost point at their worship. God says that this people never called upon him, never gave him sacrifices, never offered him anything. The only thing that they continue to give him are their sins, their sins and more sins. But this doesn't actually mean that this people was never going to the temple, that this people was never offering sacrifices. You might remember way back at the very beginning of Isaiah, one of God's first complaints against his people is, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. The people of Judah at the start of Isaiah were offering a multitude of sacrifices. And we know that under Hezekiah, temple worship and sacrifices only increased. This, these people were supposedly experts at calling on God, experts at offering sacrifices. And when they went into exile, of course, they had no opportunity to offer sacrifices. So how could God level this accusation against them that they have failed, that they have never brought him a sacrifice or called upon him? You see that even in that first indictment that Isaiah gave way back in chapter 1. This people may have been going through all of the motions of proper worship, keeping festivals, offering sacrifices, but none of that amounted to actual worship of God. They were experts at worship, but how did they feel about God? Isaiah says they were weary of God. Every aspect of Old Testament worship was given to God's people with a purpose. All of that was meant to point back. Everything that they did was meant to point back to this central goal of worshiping God. What is worship at its heart? 
What are we supposed to do when we worship? Worship is God's people magnifying and glorifying God, praising him for his glory and for his grace. So all of the elements of formal worship were meant to express and strengthen that pure heart of worship which God desired from his people. What were the sacrifices? They were this powerful display of God's grace that he was willing to forgive his people's sins by receiving a substitute to atone for those sins. Temple worship was a reminder that God dwelt near his people, that they could call upon him in prayer and know that he was near, that he loved them, that he cared for them. The celebrations, the feasts, were meant to be a constant reminder of how God had saved them, the mercies he was constantly offering them. But God's people had hollowed out all of that worship and replaced those same rituals, those same actions of worship with a heart of wearisome duty. Sacrifices, festivals, calling upon the Lord, all of those just became marks on a checklist of things you had to accomplish, tasks you had to perform to look like a good part of God's people. Whether that was earning God's favor or maybe even just earning the favor of the people around you. By treating the worship of God this way, God's people had turned worship on its head. Worship that has become a duty to benefit the worshiper is not worship, no matter what you're doing. And it will make us weary of God rather than magnifiers of God. This failure to worship was very evident in the sinful lives that surrounded that worship. The lives of the people made it very clear that the things that their worship was supposed to be declaring were not actually true of them. That They didn't actually care about the things that their worship was meant to show they cared about. If the sacrifices were meant to show that their sin had been atoned for, that had been cast behind God's back, their lifestyle showed that they loved sin. They had no interest in having their sins atoned for and forgotten. If temple worship was meant to celebrate God dwelling among his people, their lifestyle, as soon as they left the temple, showed that they had no interest in being near to God. They had no concern about knowing him or being his people. And so their worship was clearly hypocritical. It had become a selfish human religion. It was cold, dead ritual without faith or love of God. God reminds his people That their worship, nothing that they did, was ever given by him to be an action through which they accomplished anything before him. All that God's people can accomplish, God says, is sin, leading to punishment and destruction. That is the sum total of human ability. Isaiah says, this has been true for all of your great mediators, Your kings, your prophets, Moses himself, this has been true. It was true of your first father. There's some debate about whether he's referring to Jacob, who got the name of Israel, to Abraham, or even to Adam, but it doesn't matter. The point is still the same. None of them have anything to show before God except sin and failure. If God is to consider his relationship with his people based solely on what they offer him, then it will be a relationship of punishment and destruction. God says... That because this people has turned their relationship with him upside down, turned a relationship of worship for God's grace into one of performing actions to get gifts, that they may look like worshipers of God, but they aren't. 
They might look a lot like God's people as they go through these motions of worship God gave them, but in their heart, they're not God's people at all. They may call themselves Israel because of the temple and the sacrifices, but in their heart, they're not Israel at all. They're not God's people. Their worship was meant to demonstrate that reality, and that reality is not true. So God will show his people this by sending them into exile, by sending them away from the temple and the sacrifices and all of these things that they were so falsely clinging to as actions which proved that they belonged to God. Now, God has already promised that they're going to come back from exile. He's already committed to saving them, But what good is this salvation going to be if this people comes back from exile with the same sinful, hypocritical heart with which they went into exile? At this point, Israel's history has just shown this constant cycle of God delivering his people from the consequences of their sin, only to have them sin unto further consequences. God to punish them, but then save them, only for them to merit further punishment, and on and on it goes. So no salvation is going to be sweet. No salvation is going to be lasting. It's not going to be real salvation unless God can also save his people from this utter failure in their hearts, which is exposed by the failures in their worship. Let's continue reading as Isaiah continues to address this problem and then provides God's answer to it. We'll read chapter 44, verses 1 to 23. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows, like flowing by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write in his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it that you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human, Let them all assemble, let them stand forth, let them be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with a hammer and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it and planes it and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars. Or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak tree and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and he worships it. 
He makes it an idol and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire over the half. The half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts, so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I bow down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. So in the main bulk of this passage from Isaiah, we get another one of his classic takedowns of idolatry. A man goes looking for deliverance, so he decides, I will make a God, and then maybe that God that I have made will deliver me. And in the process of seeking deliverance, he labors, and he labors. I've got to get deliverance, I've got to get deliverance, and he gets more and more tired. Some of that labor produces something useful. He cuts down a tree, he's got leftovers from making his God, so he's able to create a fire and roast his lunch. That was a good use of his time and his labor. The food nourished him. The rest of that labor went to making a god that he used to try and deliver him. That was a waste of his labor. Making an idol cost him so much work. The iron maker got thirsty. The carpenter had to lay down and take a nap. It only added to his troubles. It cost him energy. Isaiah says, this is clearly a deluded man. This person is blind, thinking that this block of wood, when he finally gets through with all this work that it takes to turn it into some kind of shape, is suddenly going to turn around and deliver him from his trouble. Isaiah calls idol worship eating ashes. You're consuming what you just put on the fire. You're consuming what is only fit to be burned, and you're trying to nourish yourself with it, and it's going to make you ill. It's going to ruin you. There are two reasons that I think we can point out where we find this long rebuke of idolatry in the middle of this passage. The first is to show God's people that their worship of the true God was looking starkly similar to idol worship. Isaiah finishes this rebuke in verse 21 by saying, Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. What I'm saying, God says, is for you. You are not supposed to be like these people. That rebuke of blindness and delusion that God leveled against the idolater, that looked starkly similar to God's rebuke of his people's blindness that we have heard over the last few weeks. The cold, dead religion of God's people was looking strikingly similar to idol worship. God was like an idol to them. The temple, the ark, all of those things were like man-made idols. These were simply religious objects that people used hoping that they could force God's stingy hand to give them rewards if they bowed down to those things enough. 
they used the altar to offer enough sacrifices, if they made enough pilgrimages to the temple, offered enough feasts. This turned God into someone that his people were weary of and turned the worship of God into idol worship. Calvin's famous quote always bears repeating, the human heart, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Idolatry is knit into our nature, our sinful nature. We are drawn to look for worldviews, to fashion ideas about the world around us, wherein we can perform the appropriate actions and thus deserve to receive the appropriate benefits. That's all that we want from the world. That's why we love idols. Because we made them, we get to tell them, okay, okay, you're my God, and this is what you're going to tell me is good, and this is what you're going to tell me is bad. And when I do the things that are good, here's the things that I want, and you're going to give them to me. It all looks like karma. Idol worship ultimately brings glory not to the idol, but to us, the ones who gave the idol its religion. Why does Isaiah note that the idol worker has fashioned his idol into the beautiful figure of a man? Because that's what the idol maker wants to delight in. The idol exists to help the idol worshiper delight in himself. He did all of that work. After all, the idol didn't do anything. This is the natural inclination of human religion and how our hearts will bend and twist even the worship of God. Now you might read Isaiah's critique of idolatry and say that's all well and good, but it doesn't really apply very much in our contemporary cultural landscape where our young people are not being tempted to worship Osiris or Baal, but rather tempted to atheism and skepticism. Now first, it always bears repeating that that's not really true if you look at spiritualism and karma and the hold that it has in our culture. But you can also say that Isaiah's critique of idol worship lands equally well on the atheist and the agnostic. Because the inclination of the heart that's going to pull us towards agnosticism is the same which will pull us to bow down to idols or spiritual forces. Isaiah says the very folly of idolatry is that we are trusting in our own effort. The effort that produced an idol, the effort of worshiping it, the glory that we are looking for is our own. We want the rewards and recognition for doing what we should have done, whether we get that from the idol or we get it from the world around us. So the heart of the idolater putting in the actions that you want to to get back the benefits that you desire is at the heart of atheism or more particularly humanism, which is the worldview of trusting in people to deliver themselves that atheists so proudly celebrate. People who reject God that I have spoken to, people who have rejected Christ, don't usually tell me that the reason they don't want to believe anymore is that they want to stare into the black, meaningless void of chance and competition that atheism logically leads to. They spin a beautiful yarn about how they're going to trust in the human spirit and human ability, natural goodness, the power of what human beings can achieve. They tell themselves that they are going to get rid of God because people should be free to do what they want. And they should be trusted to perform the actions that are necessary. And we should give them all the good things that their good actions deserve. Ultimately, they abandon God to become idolaters. 
they're maybe even just a little bit more clear about what they're trusting in. So even in a culture that rejects religion, Isaiah's rebuke still rings true. We are trying to deliver ourselves based upon our own definition of what is good by providing endless chores of meaningless labor, hoping that that results in the good things that we think we deserve, hoping that that will deliver us. We are eating ashes. And your very pursuit for deliverance, says Isaiah, is going to enslave you. Those idols and ideas, even yourself, that you are putting all of your hope in is going to become a slave master, the very thing that you will need to be saved from. This is the other reason that Isaiah has gone to such lengths to criticize idolatry, because there is definitely a deliverance that we need. And apart from the one true God, All pursuit of deliverance ends up just digging us deeper and deeper into enslavement. It leaves us in a life of performing wearisome chores, striving, and worship that saps our energy and offers us nothing in return. False worship, whether we say that it's of God or whether it's of Baal or whether it's of ourselves, always leads to enslavement, weariness, and despair. But there is one true God who can deliver us from that weariness, enslavement, and despair. We would do well to recognize that this same danger to twist worship that Isaiah was exposing in God's people then is very real for us now. Church history gives us so many examples of bald-faced idolatry, doesn't it? Bowing down before icons, venerating statues, praying to pantheons of saints, putting all of our trust in celebrity pastors and fame. All of this exposes just the rampant idolatry that runs through the church. But these are just symptoms of a condition of our hearts, which can set in even while all of our worship looks exactly like God has prescribed for his people. Just like Israel could offer sacrifices of atonement and desire no atonement, or come to the temple with no desire to come to God, we can sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, with no thought that we are wretched sinners, or no joy at God's grace. We can take Lord's Supper with no interest in Christ's broken body and shed blood. We can attend church, we can sing, we can pray, we can do our devotions, all as a religious duty by which we hope that we can distinguish ourselves as worthy Christians, deserving love from God or just respect from our peers. This idolatrous hypocrisy can run very deeply in our hearts, even if you have been a part of the church for years and years and years. We can worship God with the heart of an idol worshiper, totally disinterested in who God is, no desire to give him glory or to rest in his grace. We are enslaved by works by which we hope we can force God's hand. And our lifestyle, as soon as we stop performing those duties, shows how irrelevant God is to us outside of those things that we are demanding from him in our worship. God says here, He is the only one who 
who can break us from the power of that enslavement, even the enslavement of false worship to himself. When our worship shows that we have no interest in God's grace, God's answer is to offer us his grace. When we fail to see that the relationship of God with God entirely comes from God, and we start turning it into a religion of works, God says that he alone is able to perform a gracious work of salvation in us. God looks at this people's worship and he sees a dry ground. There's no life in it. It's dead. But he says in verses 3 to 5, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. If the whole problem in our worship is that we have replaced praising and resting in a gracious God with laboring and with religious duties, then there's clearly no duty that we can perform, no action that we can do to restore right worship with God's people. We can say, oh, our worship needs to be more spontaneous, or our worship needs to be more reverent, or our worship needs to be more boisterous or more subdued, or we need to play more hymns or less hymns. You can say whatever you want. It might be helpful, it might not be helpful, but none of it is going to fix the problem of dead, godless worship in our hearts. It will take nothing less than a gracious God pouring out life where there was only death. Spiritual rivers producing fresh, green growth where there was only scorched earth. For individual people, Isaiah is talking about the promise of regeneration, being born again. Even those who have sinned so terribly against God by abusing his name, by abusing his worship, God can graciously show you this dead condition in your heart so that he can pour out rivers of life from his Holy Spirit springing up in you. So that you can know what it means not to just practice wearisome human religion, but to truly delight in God as a member of his people. This was the promise for those who realized their worship was false, who realized that they were in their heart not God's people at all. God says, I can make you a part of my people so that you can finally say, I am the Lord's, I am Israel." For the people as a whole, this was a promise from God that he, would not, that he would one day receive true worship from them. That they would once again shine forth as the people whose worship would declare his glory. He did this for his people as he brought them back from Babylon. He ensured the temple was rebuilt. He ensured that worship was restored, that sacrifices were again offered. He gave the remnant all of those things so that they might worship him truly again. But once again, Isaiah is showing us that this is only the first step of the greater salvation that God will accomplish. Because remember that without God changing our hearts, salvation from worldly oppressors is fleeting. All of that deliverance that we desire will just crumble away with our own sin. But Isaiah helps us look into the future and see that God will in fact bring about eternal salvation. 
Isaiah's words here about rivers of life, streams of spiritual water being poured out by God, uh, on God's people is picked up by the prophet Joel. And Joel says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And Peter tells those listening in Acts, this is coming true before you right now. This, at Pentecost, is God's fulfillment of those promises. Because there at Pentecost, we see how this outpouring of the Spirit was clearly only possible, clearly only accomplished because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And of course, Acts unfolds for us how the amazing power of Jesus' death and resurrection brings the outpouring of the Spirit to the world. The Spirit bursts forth, watering dry ground, awakening dead hearts, so that people are still coming from all over the world to say, even I get to belong to God's people. Even I am a child of Abraham. Even I am the Lord's. God could bring his people back from exile and slavery time and again. He could resolve the consequences of their mistakes. He could crush their enemies but it would never bring lasting hope or lasting salvation. And he would never really be saving a people for himself. He'd only be saving a people who continued to chase after their sin until it ruined them again. And this is true for us. By your own power, you can only have the heart of an idol worshiper. You might want deliverance. You see things that stand in your way. You see people who oppose you. You see troubles in the world. You even might want deliverance from some of your own terrible choices. But you will find that you can only enslave yourself even as you try to earn that deliverance, to wrestle it away from people, from the universe, from whatever idol you have chosen. Now, even if you get that deliverance that you wanted, you might know that it's only a fleeting joy. Your own sin and enslaved heart will lead you back to needing more deliverance, will lead you back into pain and suffering, even unto eternal punishment. But only God can bring the salvation that you really need, permanent, lasting peace and joyful deliverance from every enemy, every opponent, because he is the one who says that he can deliver you from your own heart your own sin and its consequences, even from its just punishments. God can pour out his Holy Spirit onto dry, dead, lifeless ground and make your heart totally new. Without this renewal, even the worship that you try and offer to God, that you continually bring to him, is going to feel like a dead, monotonous chore that you have to accomplish every week to make sure that you maintain your good standing with God or with his people. You might not even believe at this point that it is possible to know any other kind of religion than that shallow, transactional experience that you've known your whole life. But that's why Jesus came. So that deliverance from sin and membership in God's people would never depend on what you did at all. 
All we can do is enslave ourselves. Jesus died in our place and rose again to break our chains of enslavement for us so that you can share in his resurrection, so that you can have total renewal and new life even today. You can be delivered not by your own effort, but by God pouring out his Holy Spirit on you. This is the promise of Jesus, which our brother read this morning. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he said this, says John, about the outpouring of his spirit. This isn't a deal Jesus is trying to make with you. If you can deserve it, if you can worship properly, if you can keep up your end of the bargain, it is a promise to sinners and idol worshipers and hearts that look like scorched earth that he can bring new life where there was death and true worship of God where there was only drudgery and idolatry. Jesus is how God made good on all of the promises that he made through Isaiah, that he is the only one, God alone is the one who can actually blot out transgressions, actually forget sins, and thus totally and completely deliver us, even from the enslavement of our hearts, so that we can come to God and worship. God gave Israel those sacrifices so that they could be confident that this is who God really is. He gave them the sacrifices so they could remember who God was. Those sacrifices were pointing to the deliverance that Jesus would totally accomplish. Now we worship him on this side of the cross in that same reality, that all of God's promises are true only in Jesus. True worship is for those whose trust is in Jesus. Even when we belong to him, we know that the enemies of our faith would like nothing less than to ruin our worship, to steal God's glory and to steal our delight by changing worship into a chore that we perform or a work that we accomplish until we are totally weary of it, even feeling weary of God. The world will say that you are just here to look good. You are just here because this is your culture. Because everybody needs some sort of dose of do-gooding in order to feel satisfied in their religious life. Your flesh is going to say that you are just here to do what you need to do. You are just here because you have appearances to keep up. You can't take any joy in this. You've never taken any joy from this. Worship is just for happy-go-lucky people to talk about how happy they are. It offers nothing to you. It's here so people can fill up their gas tank. Yours has been empty for a long time, but now you're stuck. This is the only way that you have to look good. This is the only community where you can impress people. And the devil, that great enemy of the worship of God, will say that you better do this or God's going to reject you. Sure, he justified you, but you better show up or God's going to stop liking you. You make sure that you give him the appropriate duty of worship or he will reject you. All of those lies will hang around your neck and make worship odious to you into something you labor under 
until it's all that you can do just to begrudgingly get yourself out of bed and get the family to church again. We don't want to sing with God's people. We're not good singers anyway. We're distracted during prayer. We hear the scriptures over and over and it becomes a bore. Preaching itself is so tiresome. I've heard it all before, especially when the associate pastor preaches. You are not here to worship to accomplish anything. You are not here to check anything off or get anything done. You have no duty here that you need to perform before God. You are here because God has performed everything for you. Yes, God desires your worship. Yes, God even commands your worship. That we gather with his people, that we open his word, that we pray. But he expects that because that is what people do when they are renewed by the Holy Spirit. That is what hearts teeming with life and green breath do. That is what we love doing. We rest in God. We delight in God. We look at God's amazing, gracious salvation of our dead, selfish, idolatrous, rotten hearts, and we say, there is nothing I want to do more than to magnify and glorify the God who could do that miracle in me. There is nothing that I want to do more than to gather with his people and remind them that that is true for them too. There's nothing I want to do more than look forward to the eternal kingdom of Jesus where we will praise and glorify him forever by getting a taste of that with his people when we worship. That is the opposite of idolatry. Where idolaters create a God in their image to do what they want them to, God creates a people for himself. While men are choosing a log that will work as an idol, God is choosing a people and redeeming them for himself. And while men are enslaving themselves by pleading to their idols, pleading to the world, pleading to themselves for a deliverance that will never be accomplished, we are celebrating everything that God has already accomplished. That he has freed us from bondage to sin to worship him. Isaiah proclaims this reality at the heart of our passage. That there is one true saving God who has made a people for himself. Verses 6 to 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, be not afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. God is declaring what we declare in worship, that there is a rock and one rock the only rock. There is no other. We can rest in him and only in him. We can trust in him and only in him. We worship him and only him because he has done everything since before time when he chose his people for himself. He has done everything. He has promised it and he has achieved it all in Jesus. And our passage closes with the promise 
that his regeneration will create a people that will join in the song of creation to give him the praise that he deserves forever and forever. We will sing with nothing to earn, nothing to accomplish, nothing to prove, just the joy that we have a gracious, saving, powerful, wonderful God. He made us his people. He forgave our idolatry and enslavement. He blotted out our sins in Christ. He made us alive in Jesus. So now we live to praise him. Isaiah closes in verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Let God's promises of what the Spirit accomplished in us be to you a promise of God's renewal and his continued renewal. When you feel dry, God's Spirit has an endless supply of water for dry ground. God will never forget you or leave you. We are always his people. If he has redeemed us, we are always his redeemed people. And his grace towards you is unchanging. So by the Spirit, open your eyes in faith to the salvation that God has accomplished. See the creation already singing. Behold his worthiness in his word and with no obligation other than the delight of a saved heart. Being a child of God, let us worship and praise and rejoice in our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that salvation is secure in Jesus. We thank you that we are not here to earn anything or accomplish anything. There is no duty left to do. There is no chore left to perform, no work left to accomplish. It is all done in Christ. And I pray, Father, that that to us would not be a reason not to worship. It would be a reason to worship all the more. Father, if there are cold, dead hearts that have only ever seen this as an idol, idolatrous religion by which we prove our goodness to humanity, Father, melt their hearts Show them that this is based upon the reality of a saving God who sent his only son into the world, who did die and who did rise again to create a people for himself and renew their hearts by your spirit. And for all of us, may your spirit pour out life where there was once death so that we might rejoice, so that we might delight more than anything in gathering together with your people, in giving you the praise that you deserve, in living lives that offer glory and worship to you because you are our rock. We know no other. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.